With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And uh, as you know, for those of you who have been with us for quite some time, we always start off with page one news. And first up here on page one news, really terrific to welcome back Ava Aldrich, President and CEO of CFRE International. Ava, great to have you back, and uh, how are things going at CFRE? Bring us up to date. Things are growing, are going great, Ted, and I'm really glad to be back as well. Um, in fact, this first testing window of 2021, we had 315 candidates test, so that's a, a record. We're very excited that the number of uh, CFREs continues to grow, and that really shows a, a commitment to professionalism and fundraising. That's outstanding news, That's outstanding. and particularly for people to be able to focus on that during a pandemic. Um, That's great. So what else is going on? Well, we do have on May 20th coming up a webinar on how to become a CFRE. So if any of your listeners are considering that they want to start the process, that webinar is a great opportunity just to learn more about what being a CFRE is, what the application process is, and our staff are very happy to answer your questions during the uh, webinar or afterward. And uh, also, too, we've got the one-year anniversary of the CFRE Exam Compass Study Guide. Uh, we were really excited to debut that last year. It was the first uh, time CFRE has ever had its own study guide to help people with the content and test-taking strategies for the CFRE exam. So if you're interested in the webinar or the uh, study guide, you can find more information about both on our website at CFRE.org. Well, terrific. And we remember when that was announced um, and uh, we, we learned more about that study guide. Do you think that that's had something to do with uh, more people sitting for the exam? Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the things that has helped. Um, certainly one of the things whenever I go out to talk with people about CFRE, there's a certain amount of still mystery about the process, and we don't want that to be. Uh, the CFRE uh, process, the application, and the exam, it's very straightforward. So through the study guide and our other resources, we want people to really know why CFRE is important, uh, what it does for you professionally, and also the steps that you need to take to get. So we are doing our best to make certain that the process is clear and transparent, and so everyone who wants to have access to that um, has that opportunity. 
Terrific. And uh, Ava, just for everyone to be reminded, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we encourage everyone that once you become qualified to sit for the CFRA exam, uh, and as you said, to show your commitment to uh, professionalism. We look forward to having you back here on the Nonprofit Coach. Great. Thanks so much, Ted. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Terrific. Uh, and then next up uh, here on uh, page one news, I think we're going to go to uh, uh, we're going to go to Steve Nell. Uh, Steve, you've got an announcement for us today related to our page two speaker. I do. Thank you, Ted. It's, it's always a pleasure to uh, join your program to introduce uh, an author, in this case, uh, Shari Smith. Um, Shari is somebody I had the privilege to work with on her recently published book, which I'll get into in just a second. Uh, Shari is an expert in evaluation, and in our sector, there is um, so much um, need for evaluation, and yet it's one of these areas, I kind of likened it under plan giving, that I think there's, there's a lot of mystery um, surrounding it. It, it. it can be an incredibly complex, complicated topic. People often find things that they would rather do than learn evaluation, like maybe go to the dentist. I don't know. <laughs> but so when I met Shari and, and I learned about her, her, the book project that she had, where she, the, the very title of it tells you everything you need to know, which is nonprofit program evaluation made simple, uh, I got really excited because I worked on another um, evaluation book in the past and uh, it was it was good, but it I didn't find it simple and, and that easy to read because it's such a tough topic. Well, Shuri got my attention. Um, before I get to that, though, and I uh, I know you're going to talk to her about her book today, Ted. Um, she is a seasoned veteran uh, in evaluation design, and she deeply believes that evaluation needs to be accessible in our sector that is understood and, and easy to implement. Um, and she wants people to understand how to do evaluation design, um, data collection and analysis. Um, and she, before writing her book, she's, she's been regularly teaching workshops and um, working with clients, nonprofit uh, organizations are her clients to to understand evaluation and to really get going with it and to perfect it. So she's been consulting in a firm called Evaluation Into Action since uh, 2005. And before that, she was Program Evaluation Associate with Education Northwest, which used to be called Northwest Regional Education Laboratory, I believe. So let's get to her book. Um, I was really surprised when I first read the manuscript because I actually really enjoyed reading it. I was a little bit afraid of it because it's such a deep topic, and yet Shari managed to make it really accessible and understandable, and I read it from cover to cover and just thoroughly uh, soaked it up because evaluation is so incredibly important to understand. She even uses fun little uh, sort of stick figure um, in there to have a little fun with um, with the topic, and that's emblematic of, of how she approached the book. And yet, it, despite the fact that it's highly readable and accessible, it actually goes very deeply into the topic. And so, once you've read it, you realize, wow, I've I've really I've really learned something here. So, I couldn't be a bigger fan. Her book is doing really well. I'm happy to say, and Shari is just a delight to work with. And um, I'm so happy to have the privilege to introduce her uh, to your show, Ted. And I'm going to go ahead and let you two talk. I'm going to be listening well, in and enjoying myself. Well, thank you, uh, Steve. And you're you're absolutely right. This is a very important uh, topic. And and when you uh, when you take a look at the title of the book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple: Get Your Data, Show Your Impact, Improve Your Programs, it does seem like an awful lot. And so what we're uh, we're going to uh, help all of our listeners to today is to really understand um, how important this book is, but how it becomes a manual for uh, greater success um, in the very important uh, topic of impact philanthropy. 
Um, and I throw that, that word out there because or those two words out there because um, it is such a big deal in philanthropy these days, um, and not everybody understands it. And that's because there's so many different uh, ways of evaluating what is impact philanthropy. So let me first of all offer that, you know, sort of the difference between impulse philanthropy or, you know, writing that check and responding to a cause um, versus the, the very thoughtful, planful approach of impact philanthropy. And it's not to say that one is better than the other, but our topic today is impact philanthropy. And I want to just offer a framework um, as uh, Shari uh, prepares to uh, come into uh, um, into our studio here. Um, the framework is five sort of guideposts that you can look for as a charity to indicate that you're working with a donor that is likely looking for impact uh, philanthropy to be the guide uh, for their giving. One is um, that it generally will take, not exclusively, but generally will take the form of a multi-year philanthropic commitment to your organization. And furthermore, in that multi-year philanthropic commitment, um, it's also likely to be fully or partially unrestricted, relying on your skill set as the partner charity uh, in this impact philanthropy. And going forward, um, you also know that the donor has in mind and that you are a partner to impact philanthropy. Um, if a measurement or a monitoring of the use of the funds and evaluation of the success of the program that you're engaged in is established before the program begins so that you know what you're looking for. And it's going to be a big part of what Shari shares with us today is making sure that you're prepared uh, to be that kind of partner. And then donors who really care about being impactful also put a premium on collaboration and helping all involved to become smarter from the data, smarter from the learning um, of the successes and potential failures of the funded project. Um, and the fifth guidepost is that in the evaluation and outcome of impact philanthropy, um, we communicate that the donor and the charity communicate their findings, again, success or failure, with a high degree of integrity as the experience can be fruitful and energizing for both the charity partner and the donor, and beyond that, to those who also might learn uh, from the experience. So um, with that, it's my uh, pleasure, uh, following such a wonderful um, introduction uh, here from uh, Steve Nill, uh, to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, uh, Shari Smith. And uh, Shari, thank you so much for joining us here on the nonprofit thank coach. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ted. It's a pleasure to be here today. So, sorry, this is a very big topic, obviously, for a lot of charities who want to raise more money, want to be more successful, and understand that there are a lot of very big donors out there who want impact. They want to know that they can make a, a difference. And so your book really provides the, 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 the really terrific way of preparing yourself and understanding what it takes to be the partner charity. So I, I outline sort of five guideposts that tell a donor and a charity that they're, they're engaged in a film, an impact philanthropy uh, effort. Can you sort of you know, weigh in on that as it sets up for uh, the, the data and the impact and the, the measurement that we're going to talk about in your book? You bet. You bet. That sounds great. I appreciate that. And there was one of the guideposts you said that really jumped out to me. Well, they all did. But one in particular I want to start with is collaboration. Because to me, that is a cornerstone of success for a program evaluation process to work for an organization. Too often, evaluations are created in silo to satisfy what needs to go into a grant proposal. But by collaborating, not just organization-wide, but also bringing in any of your partners, your donor partners, on a conversation of what do we expect to have change as a result of the program we're doing, and then how will we measure if that change in fact occurred. So it's a collaborative process, so everybody involved has a voice at the table. Anybody using, gathering, reporting, analyzing the data in any capacity should be involved with what is going, what will the program evaluation process look like. So that's one piece that jumps out to me right away. I really appreciated hearing you say collaboration. Just I did a little happy dance because I just am such a fan <laughs> such a fan of collaboration because it's not always easy to collaborate, right? It can be a lot easier to write something in silo. But when we collaborate, mm -hmm. it's much more likely we're going to actually gather the data that matters to everybody, not just a few. That's right. So and, I really And that collaboration that. can come in the can 
Yeah, this the collaboration that also can be a very broad spectrum in that that could be collaboration with the donor, could be collaboration right. with other charities, could be collaboration with your community. Um, so there's there's a, a very wide spectrum in sort of all of the topics uh, that we're that we're talking about. So thank you for weighing in on on that as sort of a, a framework as we as we get into your uh, your book here. So let's start off. Part one of your book. Um, is about getting ready. And, and can you walk us through that? Because for all of our listeners today, um, they, I think we all understand that there are very meaningful, very uh, principled donors out there who are looking for impact. And while they may not have those five uh, guideposts in mind, what they do have in mind is that they want outcomes. And so how can a charity be prepared? Uh, how can they get ready to be that charity partner? Right, so that's a great question. And Ted, the first place to really start is making sure everybody is on the program evaluation train before it leaves the station. And what I mean by that is for everybody to really be bought in to doing the program evaluation process, particularly staff that will be involved with gathering the data and analyzing and reporting out the data. Very often when I work with nonprofit organizations, there's at least one or two people that are maybe not as on board, generally because they've had a past bad experience. It's really common. It's true that for some organizations, if it's mandated by funders to gather specific data and they have no input, into what's being gathered, it can be a, a bad experience. So they bring that forward when we start working together. So I'm going to bring it back to that collaborative piece, right? It's really important to build a culture of evaluation so it can be a collaborative process. So in getting ready, one of the first chapters I have in there is in the book is dedicated to how exactly do you build a culture of evaluation. And another key part I talk about is how do you plan your resources? Because very oftentimes people can get halfway through a program and realize halfway through we haven't been gathering the data to be able to understand if we're actually making the difference we said we would be making to our donors. So it's important to have that before you start implementing the program, right, to really get ready, to plan your resources in terms of time, costs, and expertise, making sure that all be three very, are ready. I, and and sorry to, uh, to be very eyes wide open about that, right, because yeah, I That's think right. a lot of times uh, charities are, you know, used to doing a lot with little um, and may overshoot their capacity to collect the data uh, that can be meaningful to a program. Um, so talk to us about you know, maybe using an example from, from one of your, your clients, uh, perhaps. What kind of data is meaningful? Because all data is not the same, is it? Well, in terms of outputs and outcomes, right, in terms of no, – you're right, not all, not all data are the same, right? We have the quantitative data or the numbers, qualitative data, and you have your stories. But what methodologies you decide to use to gather your data really depends upon your program itself, right, what you have the capacity to, to gather around. And then if you use methods like surveys, which tend to be less expensive, as opposed to focus groups, which tend to be more expensive. So when you're determining what kind of methodology you should use, that, that plays a factor in terms of cost. And, and understanding that up front, right? So, you know, the, the, the clarity of what's going to be measured and how can be a very difficult topic, but it sort of does need to be settled before you start spending the money. That's right. I can give you an example, too. I worked with the Northwest Housing Alternatives. They are one of the organizations that's featured in my book. And one of the things they talked about was how all data are different in terms of outputs and outcomes, right? Outputs is basically bean counting. It's how many people participated, how many food boxes were delivered, those kinds of things, right? And it's really common for a lot of organizations to report that out as showing their success. But it's really it's numbers. It's not necessarily showing that you made a difference. It's showing how many people participated. Outcomes, on the other hand, are change statements. It's what's going to change for your organization in terms of knowledge, skills, attitude, or behavior. And I go into a lot of detail on how to create outcomes collaboratively in my book. But specifically, coming back to Northwest Housing Alternatives, they talked about how before they had the evaluation system in place. They were only reporting out outputs. 
and afterwards they were able to really demonstrate impact by showing their outcomes. And what they, I'm just going to read this little excerpt to you. They said, program evaluation expanded our data tracking practices tremendously while allowing us to cut out extraneous data points that were not contributing to our reporting. Data points that do not convey the change in a household as a result of our intervention are no longer tracked. So just a side note, you know, they're no longer gathering data that's not useful to them which is a huge win, right? So the outcomes come from self-reporting surveys from their residents, a housing stability assessment, and tracking of daily resident service coordinator activities. Now, we don't have to go into detail around the program itself. The point is, is before they were literally counting the number of people participating, and you can probably tell from what I just read off, they now have three additional ways that they're gathering data that really focuses on gathering data that's going to be meaningful to, for program planning as well as for securing funds. So it's not just enough to, uh, as you pointed out, to say, you know, we provided service to this number of people uh, or we served this number of meals. It's, that's right. It's collecting data that, that can start pointing to change, right? So, so that's impact right. of some sort, that the, 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 the funding, the program made a difference. And, and that, that's right. why does that matter so much? Why does that matter so much to donors? I mean, what, what's the why in this for the charity partner? Well, I think the why, I mean, I'm not a fundraising expert, right? But I will speak to what I've observed is the why is when you can really communicate your story in a more specific way, right? We expect, so for going back to the example of the Northwest Housing Alternatives Program. So one of the defined outcomes they had is we expect our residents to have an increased connection to their community because research has showed that having that connection to community decreases isolation and helps to promote their overall goal to really promote housing stability, right? So when you're able to share with your donors, with those funders, that a high percentage, I think it's like 87% of those residents now feel like they have a better connection to their community as a result of participating in this program, that is really specific of being able to show, here's how we've defined success, one of the many ways, right? We expect an increase in connection to the community, and here's to what degree it occurred. That is a very specific data point, and I think different than saying we have 2,800 residents participating in our program. Just because they're participating doesn't mean a difference has been made, and it's my understanding, you know, as, you know, in charity that, we want to understand what difference is your program making. And every organization has to define that for themselves, which is what makes it complicated or seem complicated. But it's really not when you break it down into manageable steps. And, and that's why your book is so valuable, because it does break it down. Because you're right, a lot of folks uh, who are running uh, charities are, are not necessarily data experts. Um, but right. uh, but know how to run a really good program. So before we move on to um, to the next part of your book, um, I do want to make sure because you you have this in in uh, in chapter four. What are some of the pitfalls to avoid um, when you're when you're getting ready um, in in this uh, in this area? When you're getting ready to 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 build a culture of evaluation, so before you even get started, yeah, one of the pitfalls chapter four is you cover, collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, before you even get into it, one of the pitfalls is kind of what we talked about before a little bit, and I'll go into more detail, is if you create your evaluation plan in silo, so if the grant writer creates all the outcomes without input from anybody else, that is a really common mistake because then <laughs> I use this example a lot and it's, you know, based on meeting with hundreds of different nonprofit professionals over the years and hearing the same story over and over again of, oh my gosh, we have this program and the funder report is due two years after securing the funds and two weeks before the, pro before the report is due is all of a sudden the grant writer realizes, hey, I need these data from you and the program director says, what? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't have that. Because the program staff were not involved with deciding what was going to go in that grant proposal, right? So they were not invested at all and not necessarily, 
going to collect those data that the grant writer needed to report to the funder. So it's a really common story I hear from nonprofits saying, yeah, we were up till 2 a.m. writing the report, trying to figure out what kinds of data. Ted, no one wants to stay up till 2 a.m. writing a report, <laughs> trying to figure out right. what right. kinds okay. of data they can use. And it's so easily avoidable by collaborating in the very beginning on what you're going to collect, on how you're defining success. Right, so that's a common so mistake safe, that that people make. So safe to say, Shari, yeah, safe to say, Shari, that this is a team sport, right? This isn't really, Absolutely. this isn't something that just a a, a singular uh, grant uh, writer uh, can have your organization fully prepared uh, to work with uh, an impact philanthropist. So, so we we have we we've done the preparing, you know, we we've we've gone through the process that you talked about about getting. Uh, ready. We have our collaboration in place. We have the right data. We know what we're going to collect. So let's go on to part two, which is make the plan. What What is involved in making the plan? Well, it goes back to that collaborative piece, right, where you're bringing people to the table to discuss and brainstorm what change do we expect to have occur as a result of this program that we're implementing. And in my book, Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple, there is a, a chapter dedicated to how do you create a measurable outcome? What's the formula for doing it? And there are many ways to create outcome statements. I created this one specific way to make it really accessible and easy for organizations to collaborate and create this together. So that's one piece. And then I also go into with the plan, different components of what should be in a plan, right? So one of them being a theory of change or a logic model or an impact model. I will say when I say logic model, sometimes people like literally look like they just bit into a lemon. <laughs> I mean, they are just so unhappy about having to do a logic model. This is often due to past bad experiences where someone was engaged with that process, they spent a lot of time, but then nothing ever happened with it. I view this visual summary as the cornerstone from which all of the evaluation activities will stem. So I think it's really important to do this collaboratively and for people to understand it becomes a living document. It becomes a part of your organization's fiber, right? It doesn't become this separate thing that sits in your network somewhere. So it's really important to articulate that. And once you have that, to have a conversation of then how are we going to gather the data? Are we going to use surveys? Are we going to do focus groups? Like, what are we going to do to gather those data? And then, really importantly, is to have someone in charge of the project management piece. Because too often, and I think this is true in other areas besides program evaluation, a plan is made and agreed to. But if nobody's in charge of making sure that plan gets implemented, it may never get implemented. So find that compulsively organized person in your organization and put them in charge of making sure everybody does their part to implement the program evaluation plan. Well, and that goes back to your, your point that this can't just be something that the grant writer cooks up at 2 o'clock in the morning because it looks like it will meet the expectations of the donor, but has to authentically speak to what the charity is good at. Right. And, mm -hmm. and what they're capable of doing because you, you said, you know, that you have to integrate this collection of data and the, and the programming into sort of the DNA of, of, uh, of your charity. So, again, back to how do I really become a good charity partner? That work has to start before I'm even working with a philanthropist, right? That's right. In fact, I will say what works really well is to have your plan right, ahead of time. Right now, I think a lot of organizations respond to what funders want in the grant proposals, right? So then there's this constant shifting and adapting, and the funder is driving what data nonprofit, what what kinds of data nonprofits are gathering. I am recommending that we flip that, that nonprofits should be actually driving what data to collect that's going to be useful to them for program planning purposes, right? So they have data for ongoing program improvement as well as to demonstrate impact. So both things I think should be in there. So having the plan ahead of time allows then the grant writer to look at that plan and go, okay, I'm working on this grant proposal for you know this particular um, organization, so I'm going to pull these outcomes fit here. So they're actually pulling from what already exists, like what their foundation is, rather than adapting to what the funder wants. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, it absolutely makes uh, sense. And, and oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, charities are just trying to figure out what the, uh, the donor wants them to say. But um, it, a lot of times the donor doesn't really know either. They created a That's framework. Right. But what, the, but, but what they really want to know is what can you do that, with my money that can be impactful and important. So I think the power of this, uh, of this uh, you know, part two of your, of your book, Make the Plan, you know, the takeaway I think for all the charities is plan now before you are even talking to the donor and have a couple right. of impact plans that you, you have, you know, sort of, longitudinal data. So it's not just data for that particular project, but as you're collecting that data, can you go back further and see a bigger change or a bigger That's arc right. to, to the, the work that, that you're doing? So I think that really speaks to what you were saying. This has got to be authentic. This has got to be really about what you are doing. So th this isn't a grant writer making something up and creating something new, but take a step back and, and tell us how this works, right? So take a step back and think about, well, what are you really good at? What does your charity right. exist for? What kinds mm -hmm. of things do you do that you're most proud of? Because that's probably where your greatest impact is, right? That's right. That's right. And you have to define those measurable impacts for yourself. No one can define them for you. You have to define what change are you expecting to make, and then how are you going to measure that change. And I think that's what happens so often is organizations feel like they should do a survey or they should, you know, do some focus groups, but it's not grounded in anything. It's not grounded in any measurable outcomes. Those outcomes drive the content of everything that's going to be asked in surveys or in focus groups or whatnot. So then you have the data that aligns to those outcomes. I can, I, let me share an example with you. I'm working right now with Washington Architecture Foundation, and they have a program called Architecture in the Schools. It's a great program. It brings architect volunteers into K through six classrooms to provide an eight week program to teach students about architectural concepts, right? Like lighting, color, building structure, and so on. We are in the process now of developing the surveys. They have six different outcomes that we created collaboratively, right? One of those outcomes is to increase students' interest in STEAM-related careers, such as architecture, engineering, and construction. So then when we do a student survey, one of the survey items, at least one, will be something along the lines of, because of participating in architecture in the schools, how would you rate your interest in a career in architecture? and then you know, have different things that they can select. So that aligns directly to the outcome that I just stated, so that there's alignment between the outcome of what you intend to have change, and then you report it out, which shows what did change. Right. Well, you set us up very well for uh, part three uh, of your book, because obviously in collecting that data related to that particular project, it'd be far more interesting if you had data going back several years that showed, you know, what, what kind of uh, change that intervention uh, had. So, uh, Shari Smith, we're going to take a very quick break, and, and when we come back, we're going to jump right into uh, part three. And this is kind of the meat of it, right? It's collecting your data. What does that mean? And while everybody's eyes are sort of rolling back because that seems like the boring stuff, um, this, is, <laughs> this is the meat of the, the matter, and if you're going to be truly impactful, you've got to be able to measure it. You've got to be able to tell that story. We're going to come back, and Shari Smith is going to tell you, exactly how to do that. We'll be right back. Life gets busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always free and always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com on iTunes, and now just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now back to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Shari Smith. And Shari, thank you for your 
uh, your book, and uh, we're you know we're walking through for all of our listeners exactly how they can become a solid charity partner for impact philanthropists. Um, and just before we left down the break, we sort of teased part three of your book is a really meaty part of your book. It's called Collector Data. So help us understand why this is so important and why, you know, you can't let your eyes roll back in your head and you can't put this off. Um, what right. is the data? How do you collect it? And, and if I'm not really good at that, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a data person, how can I make this successful? Those are great questions. So in the plan, right, is where in the, the previous part we just talked about, is where you outline a timeline and you assign who is doing what and by when. And those, that's when you have the conversations of what's going to be realistic together. I have worked with organizations, Ted, who are very enthusiastic and want to do a lot. They want to do surveys. They want to do focus groups. They want to do interviews. And, they, and at that point, maybe they're not even tracking the participants accurately in a spreadsheet, right? So it's really important to start where you are, right, to start where you are. So in that case, first shore up that you're tracking the participants accurately and then layer on getting more complex, right? So you want to be realistic with it. And so my recommendation, one of my mantras, and I, I write this a lot in the book, is to start small, be successful, and then expand. So that's why in the book there are lots of ways to gather data, but I really focus on two key areas. First is how you manage your program data, and second is another chapter dedicated to designing realistic surveys. I will say there are many other ways. Maybe that will be another book down the line. I don't know <laughs> in terms of methodology. <laughs> but that's where I focused because I really felt like that was accessible and that's something that you can do without having to go get the technical training of how to do a focus group and whatnot. So with managing your program data, um, I was very fortunate to partner with Justin Ewan and Ariella Friedman. They are with GroupTrail, and they provide database solutions, and they have deep expertise around how to do that. So they contributed to this chapter around managing program data, bringing in like how do you decide when you should migrate from a spreadsheet to a database? What kinds of questions should you be asking a potential database vendor? So it's really clear on what kinds of data should you be managing, right? What should you be asking for? And then how are you going to store it? so that you can easily access it. You know, going back to our 2 a.m. writing that I talked about earlier, the report writing, you want to set up a system so you can easily access and analyze your data. So if you have a really robust program, having all of your data in this spreadsheet, and I've worked with these organizations and I really feel for them, it might be some of your listeners today, who spend hours trying to navigate spreadsheets and getting the data that they need. That could be a good indicator that it's time to move to a database solution if that's what's happening. But there are other instances where if you're a smaller organization and you don't have a lot of program participants, a simple spreadsheet could be an easy way to track your background data, activity data, and participation data. So that's one piece that I go into. The second is around designing realistic – oh, go ahead. Did you have a question, Ted? Well, I, I, no, I just wanted to say that, you know, I think the, the point that you're making here is that pre-planning is so important because, mm-hmm. you know, you might think that you're impressing someone or, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a better program if there's more data. But if you can't get at it and you can't actually analyze it or you can't easily collect it, you could actually sink the program under the weight of its own data. That's right. That's right. You have to be really mindful of – gathering the amount of data, committing to gather what's realistic to gather. I can't tell you how many organizations I've worked with, and in the beginning, they hang their head in shame and tell me they've got 500 surveys in a filing cabinet somewhere, you know, that no one had the time or expertise to analyze. And that goes back to the planning, right? If you're going to, in your plan, decide you're going to do a survey, be really clear on then who's going to be gathering those data and analyzing those data and synthesizing it into a report because it's really common that people do a survey because they think they should, but then it just sits. No one actually analyzes it. So that's really important to have that pre-planning. You're absolutely right, Ted. It makes all the difference to be prepared moving forward. And really having the realist, you know, is this realistic? And really inviting program staff who are generally the people on the front lines gathering the data 
really being clear with them, you know, is this realistic to do this survey? Will you have time at the end of your um, program to do this with the whole group? Those kinds of questions. Um, you know, a little story about that, how it can really go awry. And this is also in my book in more detail, but I worked with one organization where a university, I'm not going to name the university, <laughs> was overseeing a national evaluation across all chapters in all states. And they were requiring them to do this, ready for it, 300-question survey to all the volunteer leads. So first asking volunteers to do a survey and asking them to answer 300 questions. So you can imagine the survey response rate was not very high, but it was very frustrating for everybody because the university was pressuring all of the different chapter leads to get those volunteers to complete that 300-question survey. So that's what I'm talking about when I say when you're creating a plan to be collaborative, to include the people that are going to be involved with collecting the data so you can make sure it's realistic. And, and you're not asking 300 questions, right, <laughs> literally. So um, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. again, but that's that, that's killing the program under the weight of its own data, and in this case, right. the lack of data because you can't collect it against the the survey, which should have been sort of adjudicated and discussed before you even entered into the program. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and that's why I feel like collabor collaboration is a cornerstone of success in evaluation work. It's just so important. But, you know, when people are in it and they think they're doing the right thing, they can get attached to a particular outcome. And so, but that's where those collaborative conversations are just so important so that everyone's getting their data needs met. And, again, don't, just because they have the money, uh, don't assume that the donor has all the answers. Um, right. And And I think in many in many cases, both on the charity side and the and the, the philanthropist side, more data seems like better data, right? I mean, how could that be a wrong thing? Um, but yeah. it may not support the program, right? I mean, more is better always, right? But not necessarily right. if they're, you know, I think that, you know, the, the goal should be to identify early on what, what, what's the, the lesser amount of data that's actually very elegantly telling the story of change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely correct. That is one of my mantras. That is something you'll see throughout my book. And if, it's, if listeners take nothing else away, I hope it's this. Only ask for data you will use. And this is true for funders as well as nonprofit organizations. I work with a number of organizations who have an intake form, and we go through it together. And I say, are you asking this question because you'll use it for program planning or to secure funds or for some other reason that supports your organization? And usually the answer is, well, we've been doing this for 20 or 30 years, this particular form, and we've just always asked these questions. But if you go with the lens like, are you going to use the data from this question? And if the answer is no, stop asking it. A lot of people ask questions because they think they should. And that's right. not a good or, enough or reason, as you right? Said, or as you said, historically we've done that. We don't actually know why or who sees it, uh, but we've just always done it that way. Right, right. So that's a key piece. Only use that lens. Everybody listening, go through all of your surveys or anything else you're gathering and think about it. If you're not using it, stop collecting it. Right. There's another very important part of, of part three that I wanted to make sure that we cover here. Um, and because you know, everybody's special, right? Every philanthropist is special. Every program is unique. However, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. You actually can learn from other uh, reports, other surveys, other programs. That's right. And that's part of sort of going back to the five guideposts, right, that, you know, share your data, both successes and failures, so that others don't have to reinvent the wheel. But talk about, you know, how, how could you actually get to the data you actually need by looking at a literature review? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I really appreciate that. You brought that up because I feel that is one of the most underused tools available. It is so easy to do a literature review and look out there and learn the lessons from similar programs, right? A lot of times I'll do, I'll do a literature review as a part of developing a set of data collection tools for a client because I'm like, let's get out there and see if someone already has similar outcomes and if they already have data collection tools that exist 
let's leverage that. Let's use what's already been created instead of starting from scratch, right? And it's just so helpful. And then they, the organization is able to learn from these programs that they may have not heard about that are maybe on the other side of the state of the country. And it's an opportunity to learn some lessons and leverage what other people have done before them that have come before them. It's so valuable. I am just such a fan of doing literature reviews to understand and learn those lessons. Yeah, and again, just just from the simple point of view that you can streamline your own program uh, by right. learning from others, um, and that That's really right. that can be as we've just made the the case. And I hope everybody was listening. Is you really can do a lot of harm by collecting too much data, which sounds counterintuitive. More is better, right? Um, and <laughs> but collecting data that just weights down the program, data that you may not be using. And so, you know, learning from others and really taking a look at and spending time with that literature uh, review can help you focus on what's going to be most user uh, useful to the evaluation um, and focus mm-hmm. on that and focus on, mm-hmm. on, on the outcome. So, um, so in the time that we have left, um, just about perfect, about 15 minutes that we have left here, uh, moving on to uh, part four, you know, again, a very important part of the book. Uh, because this is evaluation, right? This is you, you're collecting the data. What do you report on? How do you report on? What's an outcome? Uh, what what's an output? And then you know, again, you're you're sharing. Uh, I think something that intuitively we know, but what's the difference between an external report and an internal report? Um, right. So walk us through creating reports because all reports are not equal. No, there most certainly aren't. And, you know, I really appreciate that because the in the book, I go into a lot of detail of data analysis basics because I think that a lot of people stop there and feel like they can't do it, right? But you can if you're doing a really simple data analysis. If you were looking at your output data, right, and you're looking at your outcome data, then you align the data from both of those underneath the outcomes or outputs that you have in your plan, right? So like I was saying before with the Northwest Housing Alternatives, one of their outcomes is around creating connection to communities. So in their report, they share the results that align to that particular outcome. So I go into more detail in the book, really talking about alignment and how critical it is we align from outcomes to reporting. So when you, whatever you say you're going to do and measure is in fact what you did measure and you share those findings. So creating the internal report is really what it sounds like, right? You get everything all messy in there, all of the data in there. Oftentimes that internal report, sometimes I call it the technical report, because it has everything in there. Everything's analyzed and organized under the different outcomes. And then we talk about it in terms of program planning, like what kinds of data are going to be useful for program planning? What can we implement? What did we learn that isn't working that we should pay attention to? And I think those pieces are really important. Then separately though, creating a two-page, generally a two-page, I call it an impact summary report. That's your external report. It's born from your internal report. And you're highlighting, like, what are the key findings that we want to share out? And not just the successes, but are there some key areas in which we found improvements are needed? Let's share that and then talk about what we're going to change in response to that finding, right? And then communicating your findings. I don't know about you, Ted, but I have filled out plenty of surveys in my lifetime where I have no idea what happens with the results. I'm sure you're in the same boat, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure your list, and, and, the listeners and, are probably too, like nodding their heads. Yep, I've completed you, surveys. I have no idea. Right, and you participated because you really thought you would learn something from the outcome, right. but then you're left out of the outcome. That's right. That's right. So what I go into detail is it's, this doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take intention to create a brief communications plan on how you're going to share your findings. And what you share may be different depending on the group. So your board, you may share the executive summary from your internal report and, you know, provide some highlights. For the people that participated in the survey itself, you share out that two-page impact summary report, thanking them for their time on completing the survey, and here's what we found, right? So by doing that, you know, by sharing that, with the people that completed the survey, they now know their feedback was used. 
So it increases, I think, the likelihood of them participating in future surveys or focus groups or whatever you choose to do, right? It just strengthens that relationship because you're sharing the data back. But it's really important mm-hmm. to have that intentional plan. What, piece, what are you going to share and with what group, right? So board, staff, um, donors, and the part- program participants are generally four groups that I recommend you have a distinct plan of what you're going to share and by when. It just makes such a big difference, I think, in creating that culture of evaluation. Like here we did the data, we have the data, we collected it, we analyzed it, and here's what we found, and here's what we're going to do moving mm-hmm. forward. I think that really builds and, and sorry, part that of, culture. Part of the authenticity of the data is – is as you said, you know, to the appropriate audience, but to a wider audience than just maybe your small circle of people who are, you know, doing the evaluation, is to open that data up for others to to do their interpretation of the data mm-hmm. to authentically offer that, um, and that could be scary, right? Because um, they may not come to the same conclusions that you did, um, and uh, and and what do you do with that? Well, typically, I don't. So the program, the impact summary report, doesn't have the raw data. It has it already analyzed. Of like, here is a key finding of what we what we discovered around this particular program, and then here are the numbers and the stories that support that key finding. So it's not necessarily that what's shared out publicly is left up to interpretation. It's already heavily analyzed and interpreted for the reader. It's really more meant to communicate what was done and what was found and thanking people for their time and their input and participation. Um, It's the internal report that's going to have more details that internally people looking at the data together. So when I sit with staff and I do what's called a data party, that's a real thing. I did not make it up. (laughs) And you all sit together. You have to tell us what it is. You have to tell us what it is. What is a data party? Okay. So, so as the evaluator, I prepare the different pieces of data and I put up on the wall back when we can be in person, right? For, before COVID, um, but put up on the wall the different outcomes, and we talk about what pieces of data fall under each outcome. What does it mean for your role Then this piece of data? How does it influence the work that you do? Are there ways, what can we learn from the data? What can you be doing differently as a result of what the data are showing you? So it's a really immersive experience. It, it helps to build a culture of evaluation because it's not me as the evaluator just pushing a report out. It's working with the staff so that they are getting the data into their bones. Like they are a part of that process of analyzing the data together. So it's, it's a data party. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, 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 and so that's, that's, that is opening it up to um, you know, a wider audience of people to say, well, what does this data mean to you? What does this outcome mm-hmm mean to you, mm-hmm. right? So that, so that and, and do you do that before you write your report so that you're getting a lot of input or That's, do you yes. um, do that? Okay. So there's a timing of, of, of this process um, so that you make sure that you're authentic in the, the, uh, both the internal and external report that you're publishing. That's right. That's right. We want to make sure that people are engaged and involved, and I'm talking about staff, that, that it's not a surprise to them when that report goes out, right? They've been a part of generating what goes into that report. So for the public report, I don't ever write that in silo. That is always with my client and talking about what do we want to share and how do we want to share it. And it generally has, here's what we did, here are the key findings, and here are our next steps, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. So I have, I actually have a companion website that is um, in the book. There's a password to access it, and it has lots of examples that four different clients of mine have generously provided. So people can download those and see the full color, full page, um, impact summary reports, uh, as well as the impact models that we talked about in part two is on that companion website that you can access by purchasing the book. Well, that's great. Well, we certainly think um, that folks should get this book. But so in the time that we have left, let's, let's sort of go back and, and, and review where we've been, um, just sure. to be mindful of the fact we've got about five or six minutes left. But just walk us through. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through each part of the book. Um, and can you give us sort of the biggest takeaway from today, from, from your lessons? Um, because I'm just starting to work with a philanthropist, and they want – to have more impact in their giving. I want them to be able to get more impact. 
but I'm not an expert like you. So let's start off with, with part one, getting ready. What do I need to take away from that? I think the big piece is like really understanding how to plan your resources and be realistic about that. And second is building that culture of evaluation, right? It's really important to help people understand the value of doing program evaluation work and that it is a learning opportunity. It does answer that question, are we making the difference we intend to make? Okay. So you can't start too early. I mean, today is a good day to start, you, right? Because no, people should start culture, at, and, and, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they should start immediately, <laughs> right right after yeah, we, they are right done now. listening to the show. Yeah. Okay, right, Absolutely. exactly. Run, run and start start changing culture, start collecting data. Part two, right now. make your plan. Make your plan. You know, Part I think two, collaboration is the cornerstone of making a successful plan, right? You really have to collaborate, get the people in the room who are going to be involved with gathering, reporting, using the data in any capacity so that there's agreement on how everybody is defining what we expect to have change so everyone's clear on that together. There's a compromise usually of what those measurable outcomes are going to look like. That to me is key. Yeah. So you're in trouble if, um, in making your plan, it's someone else's job or it's being done in a silo. You're in trouble. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. It should always be collaborative. Right. And, and again, as we said before, collaborative can be internal collaboration, can be external collaboration, it can be with other organizations, can be with the donor, but understand what, what model of collaboration is just siloed and doing it as one person's job is just not going to get you where you need to be. It's so not going three, to get you where you want collect, to go. No. Part, Absolutely part three, not. Collect your data. What's, what's the takeaway for collecting data? I think for collecting your data, it's really setting up those systems. Right? So a lot of times in your plan, the way the plan can fall apart is if you don't have a system in place then to collect your data. So you have to have one person, one project manager at the helm really driving implementing the plan. So collecting your data, someone has created that timeline and they adhere to that timeline and making sure, and here's the key word here, Ted, realistic systems are in place. Right? Realistic systems are in place for people to collect their data and then to manage it. So it's pretty clear, I mean, well, obviously every part of this is important. You're, you're going to create more trouble for yourself by not really sinking your teeth into part three of this book. Because if you're not collecting the right data, you're collecting too much data, you don't know how to analyze it, you don't have anybody to manage the process, or there's simply no plan, you're just not going to get the, the kind of outcome that the finance piece is looking for and quite honestly that you're looking for because, of course, the, the whole notion of, of impact is not just to meet the, the demands of, of a donor, but you're actually making a difference in the mission of your organization. That's right. And I actually, that was a perfect segue into something I want to read to you that Julia Doty said. She is the program director at the North, Northwest Housing Alternatives. And like I said before, they're one of the organizations in the book. And what she said is the data helped us secure two of our largest grants to date. Even though increasing our grant funding was the primary reason we started this process, the real success is our ongoing ability to gather data that are relevant to our work and using it continually to improve our program. And I'll follow up with her with that as an aside. She also shared with me that before the evaluation was in place, they were securing roughly fifty thousand dollars a year or fifty yeah fifty thousand dollars a year, and now it's more like between three hundred and four hundred thousand dollars a year because they can tell their story with data in a meaningful way. Well, that's such a great example, and I'm so glad that you that you shared that with us because that's what mean, it means to be a charity partner in impact philanthropy is that you it, it's part of the culture. It's part of what you do, and there will be more funding that will come to you simply because you are more prepared to share and be able to track the impact of, of your charity. So very quickly, two minutes left, um, part four, takeaway on Create Your Reports. I think it's important, again, to have someone in place to write those reports but to also have someone in place that can do the internal report, so the more technical report, and then from that collaboratively extract what you're going to put in an external report that has the data visualization, the graphics, in your brand colors, and so on, but that really communicates the key findings from your program evaluation work, right? And a key piece 
is to communicate those findings. So have an intentional plan on how you're going to communicate the findings and how and with what groups. Terrific. Shari Smith, thank you so much for being us, uh, with us today. Very, very important uh, podcast today. Um, just uh, let's wrap up by making sure that my listeners know how they can reach you. Sure. So I am with Evaluation Into Action. They can reach me through there, or they can also email me at shari, C-H-A-R-I, at evaluationintoaction.com. I'm also active on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. You're welcome to follow me there. Thank you all for joining us today here on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.